0: So I think think that most of us recognize that this world isn't always quite what it should be, that it doesn't always function the way we'd like it to, and that there are issues that we all face from time to time where we go, man, if only this could be better, if only things weren't the way they are right now. This world is, in many ways, a broken world. And even this morning, to just have, have uh, spoken about Sienna and just some of the, the difficulties that Mark and Jackie have faced with her and recognizing that there is cerebral palsy here now and that there are going to be some milestones, that there's going to be a limp, that there's all sorts of things. Things aren't quite right. This is not how it was meant to be. And I think we can all look around at different events in our life and different moments and, and different people that we know and go, this, this probably isn't what it should be we faced with cancer, we faced with, I don't know, what kinds of other sicknesses, uh, all sorts of diseases, and you think, man, life should be different. And the reality is, when God created the world, he created a good world. A world where there was uh, peace and wholeness and health and relational happiness, because that's another uh, evidence of a broken world, when relationally we fall apart with one another. And he creates this great world, and yet Adam and Eve, who are placed in this place of, of peace and, and this place where, where there's meant to be flourishing and human flourishing, they choose to go their own way. They choose to establish their own little empire and decide to do things differently from how God does it. And, and the result of that is that there is brokenness. There is, there is, there is wounding, and there is, there is uh, uh, the signs that this world doesn't function as it should. And the trajectory of the Bible is that one day God will fix that. That the, the, the picture that we're looking forward to at the end is not just the Garden of Eden, it's the Garden of Eden that's been absorbed into a city. And, and, and there is a sense then of, of all that is broken will be fixed. All that is messed up will be put back together. And that's the grand future at the end. But in the meantime, we're waiting for that to happen. And there are, every now and then, these moments where we see a little hint of the kingdom of God breaking through. A little hint of what is to be. In fact, when Jesus comes, he says, I've come and the kingdom of God is among you. And there is that sense of, I'm bringing back Eden. The presence of God is back in your midst. We can fix the things that are broken. And the church, to some extent, is meant to be one of those little foretastes of what is to come. It's meant to be a place of of healing and wholeness and peace and righteousness and justice, all the things that we'd long to see in a world that functions properly. And we're going to see a little bit of a hint of that this morning. We've been going through the book of Acts, and this morning we're in Acts chapter 9, And I'm going to read to you just a little section. Um, Peter gets back on center stage, and two little miracles that are performed in the name of Jesus through the acts and actions of the Apostle Peter. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who'd been bedridden for eight years, Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died. Her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. Now Lydda was near to Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men and urged him, please, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. (laughs) Is there a horse race going on? (laughs) Uh, He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa some time with a tanner named Simon. So what we'll see over the next couple of weeks is that Peter once again takes the center stage in the book of Acts. He was kind of central in the first couple of chapters. He's faded from view in the last two or three chapters. He's going to take a bit of a prominent place in the next two or three chapters, and then we'll hardly hear from him again thereafter. Because right, what's going to happen now is that things are about to change for Peter. In fact, what's going to happen, we'll see it next week, is the church blows up, and Peter's earth. Shifts beneath his feet because God is about to take the gospel to the Gentiles and he's going to shake Peter up because Peter is a good uh, God-fearing Jewish guy and he's already being um, kind of messed up a little bit by what God is doing and and, and, but it's going to take a major shift next week for Peter to go oh my goodness non-Jewish people are allowed to love Jesus as well. And that's, 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 a, that's going to be a major shift. And for now, what's happening in Acts chapter 9 is that God is just moving Peter, getting his heart kind of ready, and getting Peter in the right place. He's going to be going to Caesarea, just up the coast, in a week's time. And so what we're going to see this morning is more than just Peter performing miracles, Part of the thing is that these two miracles actually bear a striking, striking resemblance to some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And so we're going to just kind of take a look at these, unpack some of the, the highlights of the story, and then I'm going to tease out uh, three kind of implications for us this morning. So let me talk about uh, the first guy, Aeneas, and I spent lots of time practicing that to make sure I didn't say it wrong, because um, that could be awkward. Um, So the last time we'd heard about the Apostles is that Peter and the Apostles were in Jerusalem. That was in about chapter 7, chapter 8. A persecution had broken out, thanks to Saul. All the disciples had scattered. All the believers in Jerusalem had packed their bags and run away. Uh, And they'd gone and settled in other towns and villages around the countryside. The Apostles, Peter and the other guys, stayed in Jerusalem. No doubt went into hiding and, uh, and, and they stayed there because Jerusalem remained kind of the hub of this new Christian church, this new Christian way. And so the disciples, or the apostles rather, stayed in the city of Jerusalem. They stayed hidden, and they they kind of are holding things together while the church has been scattered through persecution all over the place. And you'll remember that as the church was scattered, they went around gossiping the gospel, telling other people about Jesus and establishing little churches in all these little towns and villages that they went to. Now, Saul has become a Christian, and so some of the chaos ended, but then him being a Christian created more chaos, and they had to send Saul away. They said to Saul, you can't stay in Jerusalem, you're a magnet for trouble, go to Caesarea. So Saul vanishes, and the church enjoys a time of peace. And it's during this time of peace that Peter is now able to kind of come out of hiding, and he does this itinerant preaching sort of thing. He moves out of Jerusalem and, and wanders around some of the villages and the areas, no doubt going to visit some of the believers that had been scattered through Saul's persecution. And he's going to see what's going on, how's it going, how's the churches flourishing, where do you need help with. He's gone to do some teaching and instruction. And he's arrived. he arrives in this town of Lydda, which is apparently more or less where Tel Aviv airport is today. I have no idea. And he visits The saints in that little town. And saints just means God's chosen holy people. The ones that God has brought together. And while he's there visiting this church of the the, the saints there, he meets this guy, Aeneas. And I've got to assume that he's one of the saints. Some people think that maybe he was just some random guy on the street. But I think the fact that Peter's gone to visit the saints and Aeneas is part of that. That I think Aeneas is one of the saints and, of course, the first thing that you have to notice about this guy is that he's paralyzed. He's paralyzed. He's in bed, and he's been bedridden for eight years. So just think for a moment, what were you doing in 2014? Can you even remember that far back? I mean, can you remember pre-COVID even? Some of us some of us can't even remember what happened last Sunday, let alone eight years ago. Um, but imagine... Imagine being in bed for eight years. And some of you are going, yes, I can't imagine it. Oh. Oh. No, okay, no, it's not good to be in bed for eight years. Eight years of not being able to move. Eight years not being able to walk. Eight years of not being able to accomplish stuff. I mean, just think, even if you can't remember what you were doing in 2014, think of some of the things that you have done since then. I've got to go on an overseas holiday. I've got to visit New York, the UK, and see family there. Um, I have no idea what else I've done since then. <laughs> <laughs> There's things that we've done, right? I've done hikes, and I've, I've, I've been running, and, and I've gone to the beach, and I've swum, and I've been to Cape Town, and we, we, we've, I've been able to do stuff with my kids. I've been able to, they were still small enough then that I could actually play with them. Um, I, I think, how old was Cullum eight years ago? 14. Yeah, okay, maybe not. Um, There was lots of stuff that, that I've been able to do that this guy has not been able to do. Eight years in a bed, no disability grants, no health insurance back in those days, so no injured on duty payouts, nothing like that. I suspect that if he's been a saint, or if he is a saint, then he's been part of God's community, the Christian Church, for two to three years at least, maybe more, maybe five years. I'm sure he was quite possibly a God-fearing Jew before that. Here's my, here's my guesses. I think that it's very likely that he's spent eight of those years praying. I mean, that's what I would do. Praying that, oh, God, deliver me from this. We don't know what caused this paralysis. Was it a sickness? Was it an injury? I don't know. I'm sure some of his friends have been praying for eight years. And you know what's happened? As a result of those prayers, nothing. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) (laughs) To to be honest, sometimes it is encouraging, because when I pray and nothing happens, I go, okay, I'm just following a biblical principle here. I'm praying and it seems like nothing much is happening. Can I say that sometimes God calls us to patiently endure? You've got to wonder, why why did God wait eight years to heal this guy? I mean, if he's going to heal him, just heal him, right? My plan is to heal you. Great. Do it now. No, eight years. Why? Sometimes God calls us to patiently endure. And sometimes we patiently endure for eight years. Kevin's just having a word with Tanya there. She has patiently endured with him for 20 years, right? (laughs) The time will come when you'll be free, Tanya. Um, Eight years. (laughs) (laughs) I've been told several times over the years by pastoral friends, prepare your church for suffering. Because it's going to come. No amount of positive thoughts and big faith will prevent us from suffering. We're not going to avoid it. You're going to get sick. All of you, at some point. We can't ward off the evil days. The days of trouble will come, whether it's emotional, or physical, or financial, or relational, whatever the case may be, the days of trouble will come. And sometimes we're going to need to be like Aeneas and patiently endure. Well, I say patiently endure. I don't know. Perhaps he impatiently endured. I know a lot of us impatiently endure. God calls us to patient endurance sometimes in suffering. And after eight years of waiting, Peter arrives. And I'm not sure what it is that prompted Peter to do this. I guess the Spirit says something in him. I don't get the impression that Peter goes around all over the place, you know, shazam, shazam, and people are popping up and walking all over the place. But whatever it is that prompts Peter at this moment, I love the words that he uses. Jesus heals you. Jesus heals you. Peter doesn't heal. Peter doesn't claim to have the spiritual gift of healing. Peter just sees a man in need, feels some sort of prompting from God, and says to him, Jesus heals you. And in his need and his distress, there's this announcement, this good news, in our need and in our distress, to know that Jesus heals. This next bit is very very important and i need in particular for moms and wives to pay close attention peter says to Aeneas, get up and make your bed <laughs> it's biblical moms you're welcome right glad to help Feel free to use this instruction in your home as often as you need to. There are times when you may need to say to your husband, get up and make the bed. If you have teenagers, it's hopeless. (laughs) It's kind of funny, isn't it, that after eight years, this is the first thing that he does. (laughs) I have to think it's the least you can do after eight hours, right? Get out of bed, make your bed. Anyway, um, immediately Aeneas gets up. And so after being bedridden for eight years, he's healed and he's on his feet. And he's going for a run around town and people are saying, who's that guy? And someone's like, looks like Aeneas, but I've only ever seen him horizontal. I've never seen him vertical. I'm not sure if it really. And and there is this, this amazement at what God has done. So now while Peter is in Lydda getting Aeneas training for the comrades, there are a group of believers just up the road in a town called Joppa on the coast. And they hear that Peter is less than a day's journey away. He's just around the corner. And when one of the members of their church dies, they send for Peter. And I'm not sure what they were hoping for. I'm not, sure, again, I'm not entirely sure that they're sending for Peter, hoping that there's some sort of miracle that will take place. I, I just wonder, well, to be honest, there's, there's no, I don't think there's any real evidence of, of an expectation of that kind of thing. In the Bible, there are only six people who are resuscitated, right? Jesus is resurrected. The other guys come back to life, but they die again. And so there's only six of them in the Bible. Elisha raises the widow's son. Jesus raises a little girl called Tabitha. No, not Tabitha. This is Tabitha. Um, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raises a widow's son from the dead, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. (coughs) This story is going to be the fifth resuscitation. There is a sixth one. Do you know what that one is? Who's the other one? Disappointed. The guy that fell out the window, Eutychus. Uh, Paul preached him to death. That's the one thing that I've never done. No one has died while I preached Um, I'm hoping that that is a record I can maintain till the very end So there's no real massive biblical precedent for raising people from the dead and I'm not really sure that these guys have called Peter along in the hopes that he will bring this lady back from the dead I suspect that they've gone, let's get Pastor Peter to come and do the funeral. That's what I think is happening. Let him come and officiate. He can do the ashes to ashes thing. Wouldn't it be nice? And it's cool because Peter arrives and there's already a eulogy in place. it's, It's already prepared. This lady Tabitha, we're told, was always doing good and helping the poor. If I ever get to do your funeral, and I hope to do a lot of them because I plan to outlive you all, Um, but if I ever get to do your funeral, I'd like to be able to bury you with those kind of words. He always did good. cared for the poor. They were always generous and had a concern for the poor, for the needy. This person was generous with what God has given him, what God has given her. And they used their time and their talents and their gifts and their resources to, to help the poor and to help the needy. They display an evidence of the gospel in their lives, and the kingdom of God is on display through them. I mean, that's the testimony of this lady, Tabitha. And when Peter steps into the house, there are a whole bunch of poor people there. There are a bunch of widows. And widows then were not, they didn't inherit stuff. There was no support structure for them. They relied on the good graces of their family. Widows were very often the vulnerable on the very edges of society, uh, on the edge of falling off. And these ladies on the very edges of society are saying to Peter, look, she made me this shirt and these pants and this jacket. And apparently, well, I don't know. Apparently, it, it, part of it is that they show Peter that she's made them the uh, garments that rest closest to the skin. Just saying. Um, uh, she, they, they, she's making the unmentionables for these ladies too. Tabitha is caring for in a real way for the needs of ladies in this town. You've just got to say, right, that the church always needs more Tabithas. And I'm so thrilled to be able to say that our church has a number of Tabithas who really do care for those in need. And so Peter goes upstairs to this upper room and Tabitha becomes the fifth person in the Bible to be resuscitated. And again, not because of any power that Peter has, but because of the power of the God that Peter prayed to. So let me pull out a couple of implications from these stories this morning. I think the first one is this, that it indicates that Jesus is still here at work among his people. It's interesting just how closely these stories mimic the stories of Jesus healing people. You remember the story when Jesus heals a paralyzed guy? That he's also been paralyzed for a long time. They dig a hole in the roof. Peter at least doesn't need to do that. Uh, but the the, the 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 mat comes down, Jesus says to the guy, get up and walk, make up your bed. Uses the same words that Peter does. There's, there's a similarity in those two stories. And then the story with Tabitha, remember the story of Jairus' daughter? It's again, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, Jesus goes to Jairus' daughter and chases out all those who are mourning. Peter does the same, asks them all to leave the room. Jesus prays, as Peter prays. Jesus took the little girl by the hand and said these words, Talitha cum, which means little girl, I tell you, arise. What's interesting is that Peter takes the hand of Tabitha, and there's one letter difference between what Jesus said and what Peter said. Tabitha cum instead of talitha cum. Why do we need to read about these mirrored miracles? It's been five or six years since Jesus died, rose, and ascended. It's been five or six years since Jesus is gone now, and the question is, have the disciples been left alone? Are we alone in this? And I think part of the point of this story is no. Jesus continues his work. The work that he was doing, he continues to do through Peter. In fact, Luke started this, this book of Acts by saying, in my former book, the book of the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you about the things that Jesus began to do. And the implication is that now I'm going to tell you about the things that Jesus continued to do. So some people like to say that the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. Some of your Bibles will actually have that, the Acts of the Apostles. Some people say, no, no, the better, the better title should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But in reality, it really should be the acts of Jesus as done through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. Jesus is still with his people. Jesus continues his work among us. Jesus has not left us. certainly hasn't left us alone. If you were at our church camp a couple of weeks ago, you were Remember this story, Um, the guy on Sunday was speaking about how how cool it would be if Jesus is actually physically present with you in your day-to-day goings-about, and you get to do ministry with Jesus, right? And you remember how cool it would be if you you get to Bible study, and you don't have enough croissants for everyone, and boom, Jesus provides croissants for 15. Or your mother is sick. And boom, Jesus heals your mother. And you come home, and your dog has died. Boom, Jesus heals the dog. Your cat dies. Remember what happens, right? Your cat dies. Jesus takes up a spade, digs a hole. <laughs> <It's fabulous. laughs> but how cool would it be to have Jesus working right next to us, right? And yet Jesus says to the disciples, It's better that I go away, because if I go away, I will send the Spirit. And it's always better to have the Spirit inside of us than Jesus, limited to one location somewhere, we've got to go and find him. And so, yes, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but there is a sense in the story that he has not left us, and he has not left us alone. And he has sent us his Spirit, and his work continues. He's still doing what he came to do. And I know know, it's been six years, or in our case it's been 2,006 years, but his work does not stop. He continues his work. I I think the second implication of the story that comes out of that is that the kingdom of God is among us. The kingdom of God is here. And again, the kingdom of God is not some future event that we're waiting for. It's going to happen when Russia invades Alaska. I don't know. And forces everyone to bow down and worship beast and Tarawira. That's just not going to happen. No, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here now, already. Jesus rules and reigns. The kingdom of God invades this space. That's what Jesus was doing when he came. The kingdom of God has come. I'm bringing heaven to earth. Jesus is the presence of God. He is the tabernacle of God. He He is God incarnate. Among us. And so, so God comes to us. And the kingdom of God then is this place of truth and justice and righteousness and peace. And it's also this place of health and absence of death. And so the kingdom comes. And, and, the, and the kingdom, it, it, it's not, we prayed this morning, we, Kevin had us pray the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, your kingdom come. And it's not just one day in the distant future, but may we see the evidence of your kingdom break out all around us and even among us. The church is meant to be that outpost of the kingdom. It's a bit like when an embassy is established in enemy territory. So it's like, you know, this embassy now actually is, is, is actually a piece of the motherland that's been, that, that, that belongs to the motherland. And the rules that govern the motherland govern this embassy. It's a bit like what Mr. Putin is doing at the moment in Ukraine, right? Uh, he's, he's establishing, he's putting in little mayors here, there, and everywhere and saying, this is what it will look like one day when the great motherland of Russia finally conquers the whole lot. Bombed out, destroyed, ruins, all of that. Um, this is what you have to look forward to. This is what your kingdom, your future is. And these two miracles, in a sense, indicate this is what the kingdom is like. And yes, the kingdom is not fully inaugurated yet. It's not fully here, but it has invaded this time and space. And there are hints here and there of the kingdom come. And so the church is an outpost of the kingdom, should put on display what the kingdom is like. The, The church should be a place of grace and love and forgiveness, and mercy, and peace, and justice, and righteousness, a place of equality, a place of human flourishing, a place of deep abiding joy, a place where death and sickness are no longer feared, a place where we can pray for the sick, and pray that they be healed, a place where we even, and this is slightly weird, but a place where we can pray for the dead to be raised. I discovered this week that we have a dead person among us. We have a dead, uh, seriously, like, properly dead. Um, Daniel, apparently, is very proud to have a death certificate, but can't find his birth certificate. (laughs) So I hope you don't mind me telling the story briefly. But um, apparently, Daniel was born without lungs. And that was it. There was no hope. No lungs. Done. Um, He shouldn't be here today. And I don't know, a couple of hours after birth with much prayer and whatever. 12 days. There you go, 12 days. How do you survive 12 days without lungs, dude? Took a while. (laughs) while. (laughs) Um, And they take an x ray, and Debbie phones Chris and says, Chris, (laughs) he's got lungs. It just happened 12 days later. And Chris is like, what, like a lung transplant? No, he grew his own. Well done for growing your own. We're very proud of you. The kingdom of God is a place where death no longer holds fear. And I know we could ask, well, why doesn't everyone get healed? Why doesn't God raise everyone from the dead? Why does he sometimes make make us wait eight years or more? And the promise of this passage is that one day he will raise us from the dead. One day he will heal every sickness. One day it will all be over. But here and now... He calls us to patiently endure and rest on his grace. The final implication of these two stories is really that these two stories are in many ways about us. A guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor who became uh, a a preacher, a pastor, in the uh, beginning of last century. He was actually um, in line to be the next royal physician or whatever, and he gave that up to become a pastor. He said, I'm called to heal souls and not bodies. Um, And and he he says every time we read one of these miracle stories, it really is a gospel parable about ourselves and about our need. And so the, the final implication here is that we're all Anas. We're all Tabitha. We're all crippled by our sin. We're all bedridden by our sin. And I know most of us would say, but I'm not really that bad. Sin really doesn't cripple me that much. And all this talk about sin, I mean, really. But every one of us falls short of the standards that God sets for us. You know, it's that whole thing of if we were to you know, put measurements on the wall, um, at the very bottom of the wall right now would be Vladimir Putin, I guess. At the very top would be, I don't know, who's a really good person? Chris Wood, speak to my wife and just confirm that. I'm not going to put myself at the top, I'll put myself... And so the whole thing is, well, where do you measure up? Where where do you put yourself between Vladimir Putin and Chris Wood? Um, Yeah, so that's why I think you need a higher wall if my name's at the top. Um, And you know, you can measure yourself up and say, well, I'm not as bad as Vlad. Um, and I'm a little bit better than Chris, and that's awesome. But the problem is that, that we'd need a wall that reaches, I don't know, to the moon with Jesus' name at the top. And kind of where you measure on this wall doesn't really make much of a dent in a wall that reaches to the moon, does it? We're a long way off. And so these, the Bible, these stories, tell us that we're spiritually crippled. In fact, it tells us not just that we're spiritually crippled, but that we're spiritually dead, Later on, Paul used that that phrase. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and and sins. And I know lots of people around the world like to talk about how they are spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. I'm not really religious, but I'm a spiritual person. The only spiritual thing that most people are is spiritually dead. It's only when Jesus comes that he can bring spiritual life. Only Jesus raises us from the death of our sins. And so these two miracle stories really prompt us to look at ourselves and to look at our need. To say that we're paralyzed, that we need the life of Jesus in us. We need him to speak to us. We need him to cause us to rise. We need to hear the words that Jesus spoke to Lazarus. Arise, come out of the tomb, come out of the grave. And you may need to hear that voice today, that Jesus heals you. Jesus heals you of the damages of your sin. He heals you of your broken heart. He heals you of the wounds that you suffered. Jesus heals. This passage ends with Peter staying with Simon, the tanner. Now, that's not Simon, the guy who lives on the beach working on his tan, right? (laughs) Right? This is Simon the guy who makes mink coats and, uh, and ostrich leather wallets and whatever else. It's that whole, you know, you know what the best use of cow skin is? It's to keep the insides of the cow in. Really. <laughs> now, because tanners worked with dead animals, they were considered unclean by religious authorities. And so there's one prejudice that, that Peter is having to break down. Staying with the tanner would have been very, very unpleasant. The, the very best way to cure hides, the very best way to make them nice and soft and supple, is to go around town and collect what people leave in the doorstep in the first thing in the morning, the night buckets with what had been filled during the course of the evening by members of the family, and to take that back to your place of work and to get your, your pelts soaking in that. It's a rather unpleasant-smelling part of town. In fact, tanners were not allowed to live in town. They had to live outside of the city walls. There was a certain distance that they had to live by. Rabbinical law states that if a young lady discovers that her fiancé is a tanner, she is allowed to break the engagement with no comebacks whatsoever. And Peter is at this place getting ready for a call that will soon come to him, a call to go to the unclean with the gospel, go to the great unwashed, those who are defiled by their sin. And that message comes down to us through the years, that message that Jesus heals you, Jesus causes, calls you to rise from the deathbed of your sin Jesus calls you into his kingdom. Jesus calls you to be the foretaste of what the kingdom will look like. Jesus calls you to find in him light and life. We're gonna pray. I'm gonna ask the band to come and join. Be back on stage again. but Let's pray. Gracious Father, We thank you for your acts of mercy and grace. We thank you this morning for how you have not left us. That you did not just vanish into the sky and be gone. But that Lord, you continue your work of the gospel of grace in our lives every day. So Father, this morning I pray once more, raise us from the deathbed of our sin. Heal the crippled soul, I pray. Lord, for those who are unwell, for those who are sick in our midst, I pray that your kingdom would break through. We pray for Don this morning as he prepares for another round of chemotherapy. I want to pray for Hannah's... Daughters, father-in-law, but no, the father-in-law who passed away. We pray for Shirla and her family um, as they deal with loss. Lord, we pray for those who are heading for surgery soon. We pray again today for Sienna, for your grace upon her. And Lord, if it is for us to patiently endure, then may we do so by your Spirit. But Lord, we pray for your mercy and grace. Oh Lord, would you set us free. Deliver us from the brokenness of this world that we may see your kingdom come. Amen. God is for us. Chris, Um, let's stand and sing. God is for us.